This is In Conversation from Apple News. I'm Shamita Basu. Today, the fentanyl crisis and how our government failed us. In Fairfield County, a horrifying discovery. The call came in just after 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon. Neighbors at this downtown L.A. high-rise are still in shock. The two teenagers died just days apart. Three women and two men were found dead inside the apartment building. Seven overdoses in the last month. This is an example of the dangerous drugs often laced with fentanyl. Dead from an apparent fentanyl overdose. Possible fentanyl overdose. All five died from snorting cocaine that was laced with fentanyl. Every seven minutes, on average, somebody in America dies of a fentanyl overdose. Nearly 200 people are dying every day. That's the equivalent of uh, like a Boeing jet crashing and killing everybody on board every single day. Scott Hyam is an investigative reporter for The Washington Post who has spent years covering the three distinctive waves of the opioid epidemic. Prescription pain pills, then heroin, and now fentanyl. He says more people are dying because of this cheap synthetic drug that's 50 times more powerful than heroin. Last year, you know, 107,000 people died of drug overdoses, and almost two-thirds of those were due to fentanyl. Scott and his colleagues at The Post are out with an investigative series called Cartel Rx. It traces the rise of fentanyl, how it's produced and smuggled by drug cartels across the Mexican border, and how this crisis didn't come out of nowhere. It's due to a series of failures by our elected leaders, by drug regulators, and by corporations who put profit above human life. This is not a political issue. This is killing people who are Republicans, Democrats, Black, White, Asian. It doesn't really matter. I mean, this drug knows no bounds. I asked Scott to start by explaining what fentanyl is exactly and what makes it so dangerous. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. You can manufacture it in a bathroom, in a bedroom. You don't need, you know, like a super lab, uh, like a lot of people think about when they think about meth and Breaking Bad and, you know, these giant industrial things. You don't need any of that. And so it's chemically produced. They manipulate the molecules in these precursor chemicals. And a lot of these precursor chemicals can be bought from industrial pharmaceutical companies all around the world. A lot of them come from China, also from India. And the cartels, you know, we're told they're starting to make their own precursor chemicals. And then they mix these chemicals, they get a bunch of chemists, and they come up with this formula. And then they turn it into a powder form. It is the same exact high as oxycodone, oxycontin, heroin, morphine, it's all the same drug, except for you don't need a poppy plant to make this, which is why it's so advantageous to the cartels, because they don't have to rely on the sun or water or getting poppies from, you know, the fields in Tanzania or, you know, other places in Asia, etc. They can just make it in a house uh, just south of the border. There is a medicinal use for fentanyl, right? I mean, it's a painkiller, as you said. It is used sometimes in small doses in medical settings. What is the difference between medicinal fentanyl that you might find in a hospital versus the street version of this drug? Well, it's basically the same drug. And you're right. I mean, fentanyl has been around for decades, pharmaceutical-grade fentanyl. 
It's used in your epidural for women who are having C-sections. It is used for cancer patients. It is used during surgeries. I had neck surgery at Hopkins a few years ago, and I was administered fentanyl for pain. So there are legitimate uses for it. But the street version is just, it's a little bit cruder, but it's the same molecular structure. The difference is the dosing. So when you're getting pharmaceutical fentanyl, like in a hospital or in a patch for a cancer patient, you know exactly how many milligrams of fentanyl there is in each dose. Right. Uh, the doses that are coming in from Mexico, you have no idea. I mean, one dose could be like super hot. Another dose could be really mild. And that's where the danger is. Sure. You also read reports of people dying because they overdosed on fentanyl. And when you read the report, it says it was a, a drug that was laced with fentanyl. Can you explain why that's happening and what kind of impact we're seeing from that? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of people think that the cartels are doing that, but they're not. The cartels are sending the pure fentanyl into the United States, and it's the drug gangs north of the border that are putting fentanyl into their drugs. So, mm. you know, the Crips or Bloods or these different gangs all around the country that traffic narcotics are saying, oh, you know what I can do is I can take this batch of heroin, I can put a little fentanyl in it, and I can boost my heroin, or I can take a bunch of cocaine and put some fentanyl in it, and I can boost the potency of the, of the cocaine and get more people addicted. But that's a game of Russian roulette. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, why would people do that? You don't want to kill your customers. And I think a lot of drug dealers don't want to kill their customers. They just don't, there's no scientific method of, you know, how much fentanyl you should put into like an ounce of cocaine to make it more addictive, but not deadly. All over the country, people are taking recreational drugs without realizing what they've been sold is laced with fentanyl. Scott told us about one incident from last year when police found five people dead in an apartment in a suburb of Denver, Colorado. One woman in the apartment was still alive, but she was extremely disoriented. She helped them piece together the story. They did cocaine, but they didn't know it was laced. They were all in their 20s and 30s. They were parents. They had their whole lives ahead of them. They were not the typical person who is addicted to drugs. They were just looking to have a good time. For someone who hasn't built up a tolerance to opioids, a small amount of fentanyl can be deadly. The kids in Colorado who had never really done opioids before in their lives could not tolerate it at all, and they all just died literally where they were sitting around this table in their living room. The first police officer to arrive on the scene found a crying four-month-old baby who'd been alone for nearly 12 hours. Both of her parents had died. In total, seven children lost a parent that night. That's the danger to recreational drug users. But we also have a huge number of people in America who are sick, who became addicted to prescription opioids because our government failed to protect them. So I asked Scott to take us back to the beginning to help explain how we got here. The origin story dates back probably 20 years when a lot of people started getting addicted to opioids. Oxycontin, Purdue Pharma, was the first to really start to popularize opioids and make it more acceptable in the medical community for doctors to prescribe drugs for pain. And, you know, a lot of people when they think about the opioid epidemic, they think about Purdue Pharma, but 
Purdue Pharma was only a, a small player in a much larger stage. There were multiple corporations that stepped into this marketplace that was created by Purdue and manufactured way more opioids than Purdue could ever have dreamed. There is a company called Mallinckrodt, for instance, that's out of St. Louis. They produced three times the amount of opioids that Purdue Pharma produced. And their most popular pain pill was a 30 milligram blue tablet oxycodone, pure oxycodone, that was really sought after on the black market. And it became so ubiquitous that the path between the pain clinics in Florida, where everybody was going to get their prescriptions filled from all these corrupt doctors, up to the Midwest and Appalachia, was called the Blue Highway because it was paved literally by these blue pills. The DEA and and others cracked down on these companies. They all got sued. There's a lot of household names involved here. You know, Walmart, Walgreens, CVS. They've all paid billions of dollars in fines for allegations of violating the Controlled Substances Act. But companies like Mallinckrodt escaped scrutiny. And a lot of these companies have kind of escaped scrutiny. None of them have been kind of really held to account. So that was the first wave of the opioid epidemic, prescription pain pills, all completely legal and FDA-approved. It took years and years of people becoming addicted, dying, of public health experts pleading with federal agencies to pay attention, to put a stop to this. Eventually, the government did crack down, but it was too little too late. Because when those prescription pain pills finally started to dry up on the streets of America, the Mexican cartels saw an opening. And what they began to do was import heroin into the United States. And a lot of people started doing heroin in in some of the big cities in Appalachia, but heroin's kind of a dirty drug. A lot of people don't like injecting drugs. And the cartels quickly realized that fentanyl was the product that could make them the most amount of money and had the largest appeal to people who were already addicted to opioids. Hmm. Um, It's cheaper than heroin. It's cheaper than prescription pain pills that became so hard to get. They got really expensive on the street. It's easily smuggled. And the amount of money that the cartels can make on fentanyl blows everything else out of the water. Cocaine, meth, all the drugs that the cartels used to traffic just kind of paled in comparison to fentanyl. Mm. And so fentanyl is now like their go-to drug. And that's the third wave of this epidemic. You know, we we, uh, went out and talked to lots of people who were addicted to fentanyl. And almost all of them said that that was their drug of choice. They had been addicted to pharmaceutical painkillers. And then when they couldn't get those, they tried heroin and most of them didn't like it. And now with fentanyl, they say it's like the best high they've ever experienced. It's total euphoria. It's much cheaper. You stay higher longer. You don't come down as hard. It's easy to conceal. You don't need much of it at all. The danger is, is that if you take a little bit too much, your body goes into respiratory failure and you can die almost instantly. So let's talk in some more detail about what we know about where fentanyl is produced and how it enters the United States. Fentanyl initially started coming into the United States from China. There were, and still are, a lot of illicit labs in China that are making fentanyl, and you could buy it on the dark web. So we're talking like maybe 2014, 2015 timeframe. And a lot of it was just being shipped through FedEx, UPS, 
you know, U.S. Postal Service directly to people's homes. And a lot of young people were just going on the dark web and buying it. And a lot of drug traffickers were going on the dark web and buying it. But the cartels, they're very competitive. And they saw that they were going to lose a market, a market that was created by the U.S. pharmaceutical industry with pharmaceutical opioids. And I don't think they wanted to lose that market. And so they started producing fentanyl on their own. Mm. And that started happening around... 2015, 2016, agents along the southern border started to see fentanyl coming in from Mexico that was produced by the cartels, not by pharmaceutical companies in China. And that was a terrifying thing for these agents because they knew that this was like a gathering storm and they tried to warn lots of people that this was coming, this was happening, and they feel like they were not really listened to by the powers that be in Washington across multiple administrations. The Obama administration believed that fentanyl was just like an additive that people were putting into other drugs and that it wasn't like a threat on its own that needed a specific strategy. And then when the Trump administration came in, they were just focused on China for lots of different reasons. And he also blamed China for the preponderance of fentanyl coming into the country even though, you know, the agents along the border were saying that's not true. Also during this time, a crucial relationship with the Mexican government started to fall apart. There was cooperation a while ago. DEA agents were granted visas, allowed to work in joint operations with the Mexican government to stop drug traffickers. But the current president of Mexico ran on a platform that he was not going to crack down on the cartels anymore. And he pledged that he was not going to turn over the sovereignty of Mexico to the United States government. Mm. And so DEA agents were no longer being granted visas to go down. There was a lot of mistrust between the DEA and other U.S. intelligence organizations and the Mexican government. And, you know, when Trump came in, he started accusing, you know, Mexico of sending rapists into the United States and saying that Mexico was going to pay for the wall. I mean, there was all this political rhetoric that, that even raised the temperature higher. And so the relationship really, really soured. And the cartels flourished. All this meant the federal agents at the border felt unheard and alone, left to do what little they could with the tools they had to try to stop fentanyl from pouring into the country. There was technology that was supposed to be deployed several years ago. It's called non-intrusive inspection technology. And it looks for anomalies in vehicles. And it can alert agents immediately that there's something fishy with a car or a truck and there's something that looks suspicious in the gas tank or in the engine block or in the wheel wells or or whatever. And it would flag immediately that that car or truck needs to be pulled over for second inspection. Mm. And, you know, a lot of that money was being diverted to build the wall. There was a lot of acrimony and debate in Washington over where that money should go. Today, you know, a lot of people will look back and say that was a missed opportunity. Hmm. Uh, That technology should have been deployed two or three years ago, and they're only now starting to try to ramp it up. So there were a lot of missteps and all along the way, and, and, you know, it was kind of a bipartisan screw-up. And then even with the Biden administration, you know, this administration has not really wanted to deal much with the border and talk a lot about the border because it's an intractable problem. It's a political mess. 
And it's only recently that the Biden administration has been sounding the alarm on fentanyl, which is a good thing. I mean, they, mm. they're really starting to talk about it. They're starting to do things. Things are starting to happen. But, you know, here we are in 2023. You know, we're, you know, six or seven years behind the ball. What do border agents say they need to change in order to do their job better of stopping fentanyl from coming into the country? I think most of them would tell you that there's really not much they can do. I mean, this new technology is going to help. But right now, they believe they're catching maybe between 5 to 10% of the fentanyl that's coming into the country. And so that means for every truckload that they capture, you know, maybe 10 are getting through, maybe more. And so they really believe that it's not going to stop until people stop using this drug. Scott has spent a lot of time talking to people whose work takes them up close to this crisis every day. Border agents, law enforcement. He told us about one man named Ed Byrne, who was working as a drug and homicide investigator in San Diego. He, over the course of maybe the last four or five years, has visited nearly 500 fentanyl death scenes, trying to figure out who had supplied the fentanyl, who was responsible, and whether or not charges can be brought against those people for the deaths of their customers. And there was this one case in 2020 that really stayed with Ed. The death of a young woman in the San Diego area who who died of a fentanyl overdose. Her name was Sarah Fuzel. Ed was able to identify the drug dealer who sold Sarah the fentanyl and charge him with drug trafficking that resulted in her death. When Ed went to the sentencing hearing, he saw the Fuzel family, including Sarah's older sister, Megan. Megan was a really promising young woman who had volunteered at drug rehab centers. She herself had a a medical degree. She was, you know, barely 30 years old. She came in and testified during the sentencing hearing. Ed went out to dinner with the family before they returned home to Oklahoma. And just days later, he got a text saying... Megan was found dead in the family house of an overdose from fentanyl. And it's something that um, even the most hardened investigators like Ed Byrne, it just brought him to tears. You know, you, you feel like, you know, you finally have found justice for a family. You've worked so hard on a case. And then to see a family get completely torn apart is devastating for him, for the parents, uh, for all their friends. And so it has this uh, ripple effect throughout the community, not only just in Oklahoma, but also the law enforcement community in San Diego. You know, Ed, his partners, the prosecutor who handled the case, all the people who investigated and worked on it. I'm sure the judge, everybody was just devastated by this. If you had to identify the sites of the biggest failures in the past 20 years, I wonder if there's a particular place where you attribute the lion's share of the blame. You know, I, th- I, th- I think most of the blame lies with the DEA and members of Congress and the Obama administration. They permitted these drug companies, Purdue Pharma, Mallinckrodt, Walgreens, Walmart, etc., to really do whatever they wanted to do when it came to prescription opioids. Mm. And so many drugs were diverted to the black market. So many people got addicted to those drugs. 
the companies were accused of violating the Controlled Substances Act over and over and over again, and very little happened to them. They paid fines, and then they continued their behavior. It's only now that there's a reckoning. These companies now have been ordered to pay between 40 to $50 billion to settle these cases against them. Mm. But those companies set the table for what we're seeing right now. They created a market. They created millions and millions of people who are addicted to these drugs. And so I think that's where the biggest failure is. Without those companies and without those prescription pain pills hitting the streets and the volumes that they hit the streets, we would not be here today. Scott says now that we are here, the solution isn't just beefing up the border. We need to focus on what's happening inside our country to help people who are sick get into recovery programs and to educate others about the dangers. It's going to require like a massive education campaign and not something like, you know, just say no or whatever. Those things have never worked in the past. But something on the scale of uh, ACT UP, which was a organization that basically forced the federal government to do something about the AIDS epidemic. Right. And during the AIDS epidemic, a lot of people who got AIDS were stigmatized. And you know, the same thing is true today with people who are addicted to drugs. People say, this is your fault. You know, you decided to do this. Mm. But it's disease, just like alcoholism, and it can be treated. And some people have a gene that makes them much more uh, susceptible to drugs and alcohol. And educate young people. I mean, I literally would, and a lot of people have said this, they would get to like sixth graders. And maybe people think that's too young, but it's not. Before they hit middle school, to start to warn them about the dangers of this, that you can't experiment with drugs anymore. You know, I'm like a child of the 70s and 80s, and you know, there was lots of experimentation of drugs. You experiment now and you can die. I mean, you just don't know what you're taking if you go to a party. And so that message needs to be driven home in a very powerful way to kids. You know, you can't go to a party and... If there's punch, you can't have any of it. Somebody says, oh, take this pill. It's like Molly or it's oxycodone. Well, chances are it's not. It could be fentanyl, and it will be the last thing that you ever do. We're losing entire generations of, of kids. There are towns and cities that are unrecognizable today because of this epidemic. The businesses are failing, and the schools are failing, and the hospitals are overcrowded, and the morgues are filled. And so... You know, people like Ed Byrne would tell you and ask the question, where's the outrage? You know, this is a national crisis. Where is the outrage? Where is the outrage? I mean, really, in your opinion, what is our failure to recognize the extent of this problem? What does it say about us as a country? God, that's a really, that's a really great question. I, I think people become numb to this. Um, mm. They're numb to the numbers. They're numb to the deaths. I think a lot of people think it's going to happen to somebody else and not them. It's not going to be their kid. It'll be somebody else's kid. And it's one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen. I've been a reporter for 30 years and seen a lot of heartbreaking things. And this is the most outrageous thing I've ever seen. The conduct of the companies that created this mess, the unwillingness of Congress and administrations to step up and do something about it, to pull the country together on an issue that is of really grave national import is just stunning to me. I don't really get it. I don't know why people are not 
Look, if I, if I had lost my son to this epidemic, I would be standing in front of the Justice Department and Congress every single day. And there are a lot of parents out there who, who are doing this. And Sure, there are. Yeah, and they're trying to get the attention of Congress and the White House. They've gotten the attention of the DEA administrator, Ann Milgram. She has started this thing called Faces of Fentanyl, and in the lobby of DEA headquarters now, just outside of Washington, are hundreds and hundreds of portraits of mostly young people who have died from fentanyl overdoses, and they're in little frames. And so, you know, she said that she did that because she wants every one of her employees, when they come into the building, to see those faces. So it gives them, you know, inspiration to do something. And maybe they need to do that in the halls of Congress. Maybe they need to put those like in, in every office building on Capitol Hill so that members of Congress, as they walk to their offices, will see these faces and realize this is not a theoretical thing. This is not just somebody else's kid. So there's a lot of people out there who are really suffering. And I just hope one day, you know, somebody will stand up and bring everybody together and try to figure out, you know, a way to solve this. Scott, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. At the start of this episode, I mentioned that in America, on average, a person fatally overdoses on fentanyl every seven minutes. That means in the time you spent listening to this conversation, fentanyl killed three people in this country. You can read the Washington Post series, Cartel Rx, on Apple News. Apple News.